Hi, welcome back to the Bedrock Podcast. This is Major Packy Hill. I'm recording at the Bedrock Podcastle at Dover, Delaware. Nice. Hey, this is a uh, Major Trigger Jordan from Vance Air Force Base. I I wish I had a what was it? What'd you call it? It's the, a podcastle. I here. I'll, I'll show you the camera. <laughs> We've uh, well. We bought a bunch right. of big leg- Legos and we built a castle and that's nice. our studio. And what do you do at Vance? Uh, well, I'm pretty much like your counterpart uh, here at Vance, chief of innovation here. So in pilot training, um, this realm is uh, fast and furiously growing and evolving and uh, changing. A lot of integration with using commercial off-the-shelf technologies to expedite and help uh, help students uh, reach competencies faster. Um, so it's 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 been a, a fast couple of years which has been awesome but more th- more importantly more than anything i think the most awesome part has just been the receptivity to to change you know a lot of people look at it and be like ah oh, the air force doesn't want to change uh not true not true it's it's been a, a pretty awesome evolution so whether it's pilot training whether it's software whether it's working with companies it's been an exciting couple of years for sure awesome dude uh so you talked about change at upt i went through 10 years ago I heard everyone just learns how to fly airplanes using virtual reality now. Is that true? <laughs> no, 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 not the case. So there was a, there was a couple of, uh, you know, rumor got out that we we're looking at VR simulations, uh, VR simulation and utilizing the technology and seeing what's possible, what's within the realm of possible. Um, and I, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways it got misconstrued the the message somehow got across that we're trying to use technology to replace training in the pipeline um and being one of the one of the people you know we have myself and a couple other people who've been really focusing on the integration of that technology uh and the message to people is that's simply not true like simulation vr simulation technology integration has its has its positives the things it's really good at and has things it's not good at and, and our job is finding out what is it really good at. Let's capitalize on that. Let's identify what it's not good, good at and help develop those areas so it can be used uh, more efficiently, effectively in the future. Um, but if, if, you know, the areas it is good at, for example, let's allow the students to accelerate their training and accelerate what it looks like. And what I mean by that is let's allow them to get more reps, rep, more repetitions. So let's allow them to build more complex scenarios in simulation. So when they go out to the aircraft, uh, their mindset is, oh man, this is easy compared to what I just did in the VR sim, because there's a lot of things the VR sim is really good at, uh, and there's several things it's not good at, just because the technology isn't yet there of how we need to use it. So it's this constant iterative development process, um, and what we've been doing advance in the last two years is really figuring out how do we appropriately and correctly integrate the VR simulation at the right place into uh, in, in bed with the legacy sims we have, uh, in bed with, uh, you know, what you're training in the aircraft and what we found, um, there's this great visual (laughs) that I have as well. I should pull up, but, um, is essentially, if you think about building blocks of what we used to teach in, in UPT, uh, in, you know, in sims, you would learn emergency procedures. So you would learn competency ABC and in the aircraft, you would learn competency and DEF. Well, now that you have VR simulation, we realize that some of these things you used to learn in sims and some of the things you used to learn in flight actually work really well in VR simulation over here. So we take those competencies that you used to learn in the legacy sim and in the aircraft, we utilize the VR sim to teach those things really well. Um, And then that opens up space in the legacy simulators and in the aircraft that we can start teaching more advanced stuff. So instead of just having, you know, the end of your T6 block 
in pilot training where you used to just go to the mow and fly formation. Now we call that a mission block. So you're going to go out as a formation, do your maneuvers. Maybe the IPs are going to inject a simulated emergency. Maybe you have to do a flight split. Uh, you go to an outbase. Uh, so you go to your formation profile, split the formation, go to your approaches, whatnot, join back up at the base, uh, and then take off individually and then f join back up in the MOA uh, and doing a, a, you know, a, a rejoin using MARSA. So these, these mindsets that is actually like very operational that you actually do all the time when you're deployed or when you're uh, air refueling or wh whatever training you're doing, trying to integrate those more complex scenarios into pilot training. And we're able to do that because of the utilizing the technology at the appropriate place. So if there's one message for people to get it, to get across and hear the truth straight from the horse's mouth of what's happening, which General Wills will talk about too, um, is that it's integrating the right technology at the right place at the right time. It's not just replacing everything. And we're going to cancel the two flights out of the syllabus and we're going to replace it with VR sims. That is not true. <laughs> That's not what's happening. But in order to have a new capability, you, you have to lose something, right? Or else you're just going to extend the timeline. So are you able to remove flights from the syllabus or is it shorter flights uh, or maybe a proficiency advance of some sort? So um, proficiency advance uh, is a term that gets, gets misused a lot of times. Um, a lot of times in the sense of when people historically have thought of proficiency advance, what they're thinking about is, um, well, you're good enough, so let's just pass you forward. And some people would use those and some people wouldn't. What we talk about is, is um, competency validation. So if you can consistently show me in the VR sim that you're really good with uh, flying patterns, and then you can go out to the aircraft and show me you're really good at flying patterns, then we probably don't need to do four pattern onlys back to back just because the syllabus tells me to. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's building flexibility at the right place. And what we found on average, and my counterpart couldn't be here, um, today, but on average, uh, out of this uh, uh, couple of scenarios we run with students who have been working in this, what we call innovation flights, um, we've seen students soloing six rides earlier than they previously used to, not because we're trying to rush them, but because they're just actually that good. Um, we've seen uh, less, sort on average, I think it was 10 less sorties for the overall T6 syllabus um, that required, it could have been 12. Um, required that weren't required not because they were cut but just literally because the students were good enough that they didn't need them so what we did is we used those additional sorties um to do more complex training like the mission missionization training one of the things general will uh, said and done which is awesome is that uh it's not cutting sorties he still said hey we're still going to frag them for the same amount of training they previously got and if we can make them better in those additional sorties that they have then let's do it so it's a it's a focus on quality, not quantity, which I know has been uh, which has been an inverse of what I think people have thought for a long time that we're just trying to increase the numbers. Um, the focus has shifted to we need pilots who can operate in a fifth gen world and a fifth gen mindset. And how can we use our current technology and our current assets to do that? But we have to be making more pilots uh -huh. um, yeah. because I've heard we're making more pilots. Yeah. Well, and and there's a there's a there's a transition between where, as you shift this process over, because it is a process. It's not just the syllabus. It's not just a technology. It's, it's a whole mindset shift. I mean, it's a whole cultural shift. The pilot training that you used to know for what we call the innovation syllabus right now, um, that 
that is going to be UPT 2.5, essentially, which is the segue from where we currently are into this fifth gen T7 type mindset training. Um, there, there's this, this bridging of the gap where you have to go from where we currently are to where we need to go, but there has to be a transition. That's 2.5. So in this transition, um, I wouldn't be shocked if we were producing the same amount of pilots uh, because we are shifting everything over to a new culture, a new mindset, which in the future, in the next couple of years, will enable us to make more pilots. I don't know what those numbers are currently, but what I do know is there is efficiencies uh, being created in the training we're doing. But again, to foot stomp, it's not because training is being cut. It's because the training has been validated and the students uh, are, are accelerating in how they're doing. They're doing a better job. They're, they're getting the competencies faster. So I think the the payout is going to be, we'll see it in a couple of years because the hard thing through this whole process is realizing any change you make in pilot training now, you're going to see the impacts in four years, in three years, when they've actually gone out to the line, when they've gone through the FTU, when they've gone spun up and now they're getting to deployments. I mean, it, it's going to be three years before we really see how many additional uh, pilots we're making and, and the level of competency we're seeing. But what we can say snapshot wise when they leave T6s going into T, uh, T38s right now is that overall they've been a better product from this last class. Where are we doing this? Is it at all the UPT bases or just advanced? Okay, so um, the, the innovation test flights is going to be at all the UPT bases. Okay. Uh, so Laughlin, Columbus, um, Shepard has their, their, you know, what they're doing. Uh, again, I can't specifically speak to what Shepard is doing. Um, because they're a little bit different. They have the the NATO training, but they focus a little bit more on the you know the NATO uh, training side. Um, but it will be all pilot all uh, the pilot training bases are starting to do this kind of this expansion. General Wills, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well um, of what that expansion looks like and and how do you scale this out so it becomes the new standard. Uh, and then uh, uh, with a focal point and the unity point being at Randolph with pulling everything together and making sure that everybody's on the same page. So it is the same syllabus. Okay. I've heard of VR. We just talked about it for about 10 minutes. What else are you guys doing in the innovation lab advanced that yeah. nobody's heard about? Um, so 360 video is not a new concept. People have talked, you know, you watch 360 videos on YouTube. What is a new concept is the anim the animated interaction uh, that, that our guys are using because uh, you know, the video as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not a new, not a new concept at all. Um, but putting the right focal point point at the right point of the video. So if a student puts on the headset, you know, they don't know what they don't know. So just a video of a plane doesn't do any good. So as you're talking through maneuvers, as you're talking through, um, whether it's a maneuver, whether it's a procedure, actually having a team animate those, the arrows in there and say, Hey, as you're reaching this point, you need to look at this, you know, this ground reference and have them look over there. So that now through 360 video academics, not only can you show them exactly what right looks like and where they need to be looking along the point of maneuver, but now we can go to the VR sim and integrate it and, and actually fly it. Also, um, there, you know, technologies like a couple that have the, uh, the grading capability to see what we're doing in the aircraft and then aside, you know, automate a grade to it, not only in the aircraft, but also in the simulation. Um, so when you come back, you can, you know, it's seen what you've flown and says, hey, the student was, uh, had an 80% on their final approaches. They had a 30% on their approach points. They flew this instrument approach to a 60%, um, which allow, allows us to kind of build a data statement of where that student is actually performing. You know, one of the biggest things is, is data, da the data analysis and having the data to be able to back it. 
Um, and that's one of the, the areas we've really had to focus on is what is our data strategy so we can actually capture the appropriate information to actually see a trend of how things are going for each and every student. Um, and if you ask anybody who's, I mean, you've been in innovation long enough, if you look at, talk to anybody, data is a huge, uh, a huge beast to tackle. <laughs> how do you capture the right data? How do you tag it appropriately? How do you reference it so it actually means something? Um, data is, man, that's why there's massive companies who tackle that. So that also video recorded academics, a, a lot of, you know, uh, taking what you instructors used to do in a classroom three times a week, teaching the same class, putting that in a good video format behind a green screen. So it's an inter, kind of this interactive lesson. Uh, you know, dude, Packy, a lot of these answers are simple stuff where you're like, well, yeah, duh. But it just takes somebody to do it. It's a simple solution to an everyday problem. That's what we focus on. What are you doing with all that free time? <laughs> being a dad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Being a, being a dad, man. Talking to, talking to bros like you. <laughs> That's good stuff, man. Hey, Trigger, uh, with all those things you yep. just said about innovation and, and all the things Advance is doing and that all the UPT bases are doing, um, I'm interested to hear what you think the biggest misconception is with innovation. Um, you know as well as I do that it's not for everyone. And it's quickly, in some circles, becoming a four-letter word that people just don't want to deal with. So uh, what would you say to all the doubters? Yeah, um, I think the biggest misconception is that uh, it has everything to do with technology, it has everything to do with changing processes, it has everything to do with just like an upheaval of what we've known. And that, frankly, people are like, it's almost this mentality that people are changing for the sake of change. Um, and I think the biggest mis misconception is that that is what innovation is. And realistically, like you know as well as I do, innovation, man, is finding a simple solution to your everyday problems, to the things where you're like, dude, there's got to be an easier way. Like, it, how many times have we said that before of just like sport complaining about whatever it is, whether we're in the desert or whether at home station, we're like, dude, this sucks. Like, why can't we fix this? To me, that's innovation. And it doesn't, you know, people talk about evolutionary innovation and revolutionary. Is this really going to revolutionize what we do? Dude, the, the majority of stuff is just, it's not revolutionary. It's just literally applying a simple solution to whatever your problem is that maybe was there. But it makes life easier and it makes the mission more effective. And it, it makes, frankly, our lives more enjoyable. And I think what I'd probably say to people that, um, you know, are, are hating on the innovation train is that I get it. A word gets used a lot and quickly it becomes a word you never want to hear again. But if you look at the root cause, like the, the, the real baseline of, of what it is, it's people's ability to bring a logical solution, like fix the things that you hate. It's the ability to do that. It's, it's the ability to, to look at a process or look at, um, you know, look at something that you've been annoyed with the entire time and said, we can fix this. Like, let's, let's come out with a logical conclusion how this cannot suck anymore and there's been an appetite for it to be honest i think that's the biggest um the biggest misconception about what innovation is uh, frankly it's just connect I, and the, the other baseline i'd say is is a lot of times if you can connect a person to their passion what they love to do they'll create phenomenal solutions you know we, we've seen it a lot with we had an airman that was uh, he was working in the raw shop which is uh it, like radio and instrument repair and he was, he loves programming. So we said, Hey, what do you think about just coming over here and like starting a coding cell so we can start fixing some of the issues with programs we have here in base. 
And this dude, like, he, he ate it up and loved it. And just by having the opportunity to, to give someone the opportunity to do something that's different that they're really interested in, it makes all the difference in the world. And you know how many answers we've been able to get just by releasing him to do it? Dude, it's been insane. It's been insane. To me, that's what innovation is. It's not, it doesn't have to be Tesla. It doesn't have to be SpaceX. It doesn't have to be um, this complete revolution of something totally and completely new. It's just literally fixing the things that you have the ability to fix and just empowering people to do it. That's innovation to me. Yeah. And the biggest thing I found is people get excited in different ways. And so you can go brief at an all call and out of a thousand people, you might get five people excited with your PowerPoint slide and, you know, the jokes that you say up on stage. But then if yeah. you bring somebody to the innovation shop and you put them in the VR goggles or you take them out to the flight line and you show them that, hey, if we use this tool, that job that used to take you all day now takes about 10 minutes. Um, yeah. We've, it, the problem is it takes forever, but we have been breaking yeah. down some of those barriers by doing that. And I know you have been too. Yeah. And you know, initially, I don't know if you're the same as me. Initially, I, I was almost frustrated that more people didn't get on board. But then you look at, you know, you look at the process of, 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 of new technology. There's the early adopters, right? And the early adopters are few and far between. You have your onesies, twosies, your one to 2%. But what I've realized is that those one or 2% people are, are, do their worth their weight in gold. If yeah. you can get one or two people who's, who are legitimately excited about what they're doing, they're excited about the, the opportunity, about the process, they will create the best solutions ever and it turns out I don't need a team of 10 or 15 people to do it. You take one or two people who are passionate about it and connect them to their passion, dude, it's it's game over at that point because they're motivated. They love what they do. Speaking of people who love what they do, uh, we've got an interview with Major General Craig Wills. He's a 19th yeah. Air Force commander. And uh, for those of you who don't know, 19th Air Force covers all of undergraduate pilot training for the Air Force, all the um, pilot training bases. Uh, did I miss any? No, there's there's more people. Uh, it includes like RPA and all of okay. all of training. So even FTU training uh, includes that as well. Air Force Academy is wrapped into that. Um, there's a lot of lot of pieces that fall under 19th. Awesome. Here's the interview. Sir, thanks for calling in all the way from Randolph. Correct. Yeah, it's uh, Craig Wills, Commander of 19th Air Force since last June. I'm really excited to be here, and thanks for what you're doing to help spread the word to our pilots and our air crew out there. I uh, have a, a background as a backseater. I spent a few years as a WIZO, and then I went to pilot training, flew primarily fighters and trainers. So I'm really excited to be part of the training enterprise and back at, at Randolph Air Force Base. We've got a lot of exciting things going on across the command. Hopefully we'll be able to talk about some of them. Obviously, a lot of our pilots out there are very tuned into some of the issues of the day, like retention and pilot production and deployment tempo, all, all serious considerations. I'm also tracking all of those things and working hard on a number of fronts with my awesome team in 19th Air Force to try and get after you know, how do we create high-quality pilots for our Air Force in the 21st century? How do we sustain and create and cultivate an environment where people feel that their quality of service is is high and their quality of life is high as well so that they remain motivated to stay with the world's greatest air force and then most uh most often lately we spend a lot of time talking about how can we use the technology that's out there to harness into our training programs to make sure that our air force is really indeed producing the world's best pilots so i'm looking forward to talking with you about all those subjects and then anything else you want to talk about 
All right, sir. Thanks for that intro. Um, I'll just go ahead and ask you a question. Uh, you, you talked about training for the 21st century. I went through pilot training about 10 years ago, and I think Trigger probably did as well, give or take some. Um, how has sure. UPT changed since I went through, uh, especially in the last two or three years? Well, that's a great question. And actually, the biggest problem is, for the most part, it hasn't changed. In fact, if you go back to, you know, when I went to navigator training in 1991, they issued me a black and white poster of the T-37 cockpit, and I used that thing to chair fly. And when I went to pilot training in 1995, I got the same poster because it was the same airplane, all black and white. I used that to chair fly. 2009, I went to Randolph for pilot instructor training in the T-6, brand new airplane. I got essentially the same poster for the T-6. The big difference was it had some parts of it that were in color. But if you look at our training system, the idea that you're going to definitely take a certain amount of time and a certain amount of hours, you've got to fly two different airplanes. All of that stuff fundamentally hasn't changed in decades. And so it could be that we've stumbled upon, you know, the, the absolute golden formula that can never be changed. Or it could be that we're a little bit behind the times in recognizing better ways to go after it. The science on how students learn, how people learn has changed dramatically. In the time since you went to pilot training, essentially about the time you went to pilot training, they introduced the iPhone and the way that people access data and content and live their lives is, has changed dramatically. And fundamentally, the way that we expect people to learn remains the same as it was 50, 60 years ago. So bottom line is it hasn't changed fast enough. Now, what we have seen is the last two or three years, you know, beginning with the initiatives of Lieutenant General Quast when he was the AETC commander, this pilot training next idea of, hey, how can we do things a little bit different to produce a high quality student? We've seen some pretty dramatic possibilities open up. So pilot training next is now on their third iteration. It's simple things like introducing virtual reality and off the shelf software to allow people to, to chair fly in a smarter way. It's things like looking at how students learn and, and focusing on the fact that every student is in fact a little bit different. All of these things and more are really opportunities for us as we go forward. I think you already answered my follow-up question uh, because you were talking about the chair flying, but when I hear VR, and uh, I know you're on Facebook, so you see the comments, when other pilots hear VR, they say, oh, great, we've taken away sorties and we're replacing it with virtual reality. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, there's a lot in that question, and, and typically the people who say that are people who haven't had a lot of experience with the types of VR that we're using. As a pilot, as an aviator, you will you will never get me to say that the time that you get in the air isn't incredibly valuable and that we shouldn't be very, very careful about reducing the amount of airborne experience we get. But if you look at the results we've had, you know, a different way to ask that question is, do you want to maximize the number of hours that you fly in a T-6 or would you rather get to your C-17 unit or your C-5 unit quicker and get more hours in the C-5? And that's kind of where I'm at. If you look at the, the way that we're using the VR, in the old days, what I would characterize chair flying in the old days and in, and in a lot of places today, I would say that that's preparation. And if you remember back to your chair flying days, and what you see across the board is that students who are very, very disciplined and who are also very creative, they get a lot out of chair flying because they can visualize the sortie and they get a lot out of it. If you're not very good at those things, you don't get a lot out of it. And so I would say in the old days, chair flying is primarily preparation. What we're finding with the tools that we've put together now is that there's an opportunity for the chair flying 
to actually be training. An example, Packy, of how that's turning out, if you think back to the first few sorties that you flew in C6, you might remember that you spent a lot of time looking for traffic pattern references. You know, I've, I've been through this a couple of times, and it seems like, especially in Texas, you know, the IPs will tell you that you're going to go fly and look for a pond, and then half the year the pond is empty, so it's not really a pond. <laughs> that sound familiar at all? Yeah, yeah, dry or, land bed. Uh, it's out there. It's yeah. And uh, Columbus or has the big white line. house, I think. <laughs> yeah, big white house, section lines. Hey, somebody somebody painted the side of a barn orange 25 years ago, and it's not really orange anymore, but we still call it the orange barn. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's awesome. But what we're finding is that if you take three, 360 degree videos and you give somebody a set of uh, VR goggles, on the very first sortie that they go out to fly. They know they can recognize all of the pattern references, which is pretty amazing. And so when you ask yourself, you know, what does that mean? What it means is you don't spend four or five or six sorties poking around trying to find the pattern references, which means you learn better on the sorties that you do fly. And when you look at the procedural things uh, that are available to, to practice, the way that the rubber kind of meets the road on this is that at Pilot Training Next, they had students that were ready to solo after four sorties as opposed to 14 sorties. So no argument that, that uh, airborne training is something that we have to be very careful about replacing. But if you gave me the choice of poking around, looking for traffic pattern references for an hour, or going out and getting high-quality training, I think I'd take the high-quality training. So we have to be careful. There's a lot of possibilities. The technology right now isn't there to, to 100% replicate the flying experience. But we, we would be foolish if we didn't go after it and try to find a smart way to integrate these tools. Uh, and if I can just, here's the other thing on this. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see some of the ways we're using the VR in the maintenance world, but um, a couple of days ago, I went downstairs to where our team is working on some of this, and I was able to put on the VR goggles and essentially pre-fly to C5 in the VR environment. And it, I'm telling you, the quality of this thing, Packy's amazing. So when you look at the, the applications across the board, we're giving people the opportunity to get higher fidelity training once they get to the actual devices. So it's not the be all end all. When you, when you put the goggles on, it doesn't instantly make you smarter, you know, which I was very disappointed to learn as I, I'm trying to recall in the T6, but the VR doesn't do anything magical for you, but it does enable you to train uh, better. So I'll kind of, I'll take a step backwards then. Um, everybody's, or at least all the pilots like to talk about the pilot crisis or the aircrew crisis. There's the, the old question, is it a retention problem or a production problem? And I think a lot of people tie the improvements that you're making in UPT to folks previously who have said, I don't need you to stay in the Air Force because I can just produce more pilots to take your place. And so is that what we're doing or are we kind of attacking this from both angles? Well, you know, if I, I've never heard anybody actually say that. And if I did, I would take huge issue with them. Um, that comment is really irresponsible, I think. Um, you know, we have a retention model. The Air Force, for a long time, our, our model is to try and retain as many people as possible. The Marine Corps has a different model with their young Marines. But I'd just tell you, at the senior leadership level, we want every one of our airmen, if, if, uh, if they're doing a great job, we want everybody to be happy and we want them to stick around because it's a great, in my view, a great way of life. But is the, the retention problem, it's both, right? If you, um, if you could produce 2,000 pilots a year, you might not be as alarmed if you had um, a 40% or 44% bonus take rate. But in a case where you have 
less retention than you would like, and you're producing fewer pilots than you would like, then obviously it's, you know, the two of those things together are not a good, that's not the narrative we're looking for. And it's certainly not the situation we're hoping for. So where that leaves us and and particularly in my position is that I have an imperative to produce both high quality and a high quantity. There's a big debate raging around AATC, and I think it's kind of a false debate because every time we cut a syllabus sortie somewhere, people accuse me of caring more about quantity than quality. And it's not true. The reality is we need the maximum number of high quality pilots that we can get. So as I look at Pilot Training Next and our efforts to bring that to scale, my primary focus is I've got to produce a high quality pilot for our MAF and our CAF and AFSOC and our customers. Um, and so that, that's really where I'm at. You know, you need them both. Okay. That, that's a and great answer. By, hey, but by, by the way, Packy, if I could just add this part. Sure. If you gave me the choice of having um, one squadron of each MDS and everybody in it was highly trained, highly motivated, highly capable, and really wanted to serve, I'd rather have one squadron in each MDS. I think we could beat anybody in the world like that compared to having a bunch of squadrons full of people that don't want to be there or aren't happy about their service or are not well-trained. And so, you know, to me, it's about the fighting force American needs. No kidding. For sure. I mean, the Air Force has proved that that statement's correct over the last, what, 70 years now, Uh, 75 years. Yeah, that's Um, right. You you brought up quantity versus quality, and I don't have any data, uh, and I would suspect that maybe this data doesn't exist. But I can tell you that a lot of seasoned pilots and uh, especially folks on their way out or folks who have gotten out are saying that by increasing quantity, supposedly, that we're putting a burden on the FTU with potentially less experienced students. Um, And a different way of saying that uh, or a different way of asking that is, have the standards gone down and has the washout rate gone down at UPT? I know back in the 80s, it was much higher than it was when I went through 10 years ago. So is that something yeah. that's fluctuated? That's kind of two different questions. Yeah, really good questions too. Um, let me talk about the washout rates first. I mean, there was a time, if you go back and go into the way back, you know, the 70s and 80s, where you had, at least according to legend, these aren't, these aren't numbers that I would um, swear to, but I hear stories of 40, 50% attrition, you know, back in the heyday in the late 70s and early 80s. Certainly, we've gone away from that. For the most of the time that I've been associated with the training enterprise, our programmed attrition in T6s is somewhere around 6%. Now, I will say the last year or two that, that across the board, the attrition has been less than that. And one of the concerns I have is making sure that there's a good reason for that. You know, is it true that we have better students and that they're just doing a be- and better IPs and they're just doing a better job? Or is it true that there's some kind of unseen or a definitely a felt pressure to produce more pilots. And that's the one that most scares me. So if there's any AATC IPs listening out there, let me be pretty clear is that the standard is the standard. And the best thing you can do for somebody who's not meeting the standard is to wash them out of training uh, because it's too, it's too important. So I, we'll see what happens uh, across, you know, we'll see what the latest data looks like, but generally speaking, attrition rates in the last 10 years have been lower than historical, but don't forget also that we had high fidelity, much higher fidelity training aids that came with the T6. So much better simulators and, uh, a much better airplane. And so I think it's, it's very difficult. They're kind of apples and oranges. If you want to compare 1980s, T37, T38 versus 2000s and 2010s T6. 
So that's, that's how I kind of feel about the washout rate. I mean, believe me, there's no pressure from 19th Air Force to pass somebody who shouldn't meet the standards. Do I expect my IPs to do everything they can to teach our students and help them meet the standard? Absolutely. But I have no interest in, any, in keeping a student who, doesn't, who can't do it. Now, with respect to the question about have we seen, have we reduced the standards or reduced the quality? I will say that uh, one of the things that we see is that you, if you kind of think about the, the continuum of a graduate, if you put a bunch more stuff into the syllabus, and this is primarily a factor at FTU, let's just say, for example, you know, an F-35 land, because 19th Air Force, we have F-35s. For the, for the first few years of the program, we were producing pretty much a mission-ready wingman at the end of FTU. So when the F-35 graduates would go to their ops unit, they really just took a local area, local area orientation ride and they were combat ready. That's not the normal way that it's been in fighter FTU for most of my career. Typically, the fighter FTU was about six months long. And when you got to your ops unit, you had to do about two or three months of, of a mission-ready checkout. As right now, because we need to get as many qualified F-35 pilots out there as we're standing up new squadrons, we've recently made the decision to go back to the older model. So if you're on the receiving end of a brand new B, B course graduate, you know, whereas a year ago you would have got somebody that's fully combat ready. Now you're going to get somebody who still needs some polishing off. In this particular case, a lot of times the pilots will say, well, we've lowered the standard. No, we haven't lowered the standard, but we're sending, we're training to a different standard at FTU and there's still more training required. So I know it sounds like a little bit of a nuance, but, Fundamentally, how much training we give people is in a lot of cases a choice. At the UPT level, we're seeing this uh, play out in real time because about two years ago, we had a massive problem with the OBOGs on the T6. And that resulted in the loss of about 13,000 sorties. And so one of the ways we got production back on track is we went through and we thinned out a lot of the sorties and T6s. So it's definitely true that for the last couple of years, the T6 students were not being trained to the same level of competencies, you know, in formation, for example, and uh, in different areas that we had been doing it before. The question is, are they still meeting the standard? In my view, the answer is yes, but we still are working through the data on that. So it's, it's a little tricky because if you're at FTU and you see one class rolls in and they had, they had you know, 13 more hours of training, you may see a difference than then the next class that comes in, those next class may need a little bit more training at FTU. So uh, it's a little bit tricky, Packy, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't feel like we've lowered the standard, but in some cases we've definitely taken training out of there and we're not training to the same standard. Sorry, being muted doesn't help. So one of the things that um, I know that you've been work, working through and that we've been working through as well is when you look at what's happening in pilot training now, right now with UPT 2.5, you know, you've heard it as well as I have that, that, there's a mindset of you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And when we're trying to work through integrating modern technology with processes that have been you know, older and people who have been around those processes for a long time, there's these growing pains. These pains of, you know, you've heard, heard it said the frozen middle. You've heard it said a hundred, you know, a bunch of different ways. But one of the things that it's, it's been really true in working with AFWorks and other people is that it's not just pilot training, fix, you know, addressing having these issues of having to work through systems that are older, how is it that we take these modern approaches and these modern technologies and integrate them into a system that has not moved in a long, long time? Yeah, that's, 
you know, a great question trigger. And so what I would tell you is that um, we're fortunate actually, because we have a lot of people that care passionately about what we're doing. And here on the 19th Air Force staff, I think I have the most passionate staff of any staff in the whole military, frankly. Most of them have been to pilot training or nav training. Um, they've been aviators. And let's face it, we all have fond memories of our flight training and typically have pretty good memories of our flying career. And so when somebody comes in and says, hey, we're going to make a radical change to a formula that works, the natural thing to happen is resistance. And it's true across the board. You know, when you look at uh, you know, this is Clausewitz in full glory, even the simplest things are difficult. And it's not we tend to have these bureaucratic yeah. fights and you're fighting with people who agree with you. Yeah. Which is crazy. You know, you know this better than I do. When you talk yeah. about the authority to operate on the on the network, <laughs> all the people that want to help you actually want to help you as they're as they're making it harder for you. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is the answer to your question is we have to continue to communicate and explain the why. And we have to we have to take this one step at a time. There's not going to be one magical day where, the you know, you're going to come to work and the whole world changes in a positive way where everybody goes, hey, all of a sudden we're on board with radical new thinking and we're willing to take dramatic risk in things that we care deeply about. If you're waiting for that day, my friend, you're going to be waiting a yeah. while. Yeah. Yeah. But. But if you can go talk to them, like I say, we, we have an advantage because the people care deeply about the business. But sometimes we forget. And so I like to talk in terms of the, of the way we live and the way we train and the way we work. Our, in the Air Force, this is our biggest fundamental challenge, is that the way that we live and the way that we work have been too different for too long. And if you pictured sort of two arrows going in a slightly different direction away from each other, the distance between those is trust and it's credibility. Real simple example. If I pick up my iPhone right now, in about 10 minutes, I can book a trip to Italy for me and my wife. I can pay for the tickets. I can have uh, the flight I want. I can have a hotel and I can have set up dinner at some great restaurant in Italy. That takes about 10 or 15 minutes. And if I want to, I want to haggle over a penny, every penny, it takes an hour. If I come to work and try to waggle my way through DTS, I mean, it's like not that easy, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So the, the young people that are coming to our service are more and more frustrated with this because it's such a big gap between the way we live and the way we work. So we've got to get after it. We, and I think the Air Force is getting after it. And so one of the reasons when you talk to General Goldstein or, or General Wilson, we've put a massive amount of emphasis on innovation in the last couple of years to include pushing squadron innovation funds down to the squadron level. And part of the reason for doing that is these guys know that not every one of these things is going to hit pay dirt. We know that not every 3D printing idea is a good idea. We know that not every spark tank idea is going to change the world. But what they're really hoping to do is to cement a culture of innovation so that for this next generation of leaders, it's going to be more likely that we're going to see the big change because it's, it's going to have to be one step at a time and we've got to get after it on a broad scale. So, it's a huge issue. There's lots of books that have been written about it. The way that I'm trying to get after it is to try to talk to as many people as I can and explain it. And I'll tell you one of the ways, if you, if you want to talk to folks that are a little older, you know, than you guys are. But one of the things that I talk to my staff about is I say, imagine going to your children and taking away their smartphones and devices and telling them that, Hey, you know, that internet thing, it was just a fad. 
so we're going back to the old way. I mean, just, how do you think that's going to go over? Yeah, I, I can tell you, not well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you know yeah. exactly. And so, uh, you know, I mean, the definition of a crisis is you get someplace that doesn't have Wi-Fi. I mean, this is a massive thing for young people. Yeah. But if you think about that, fellas, you know, in the bigger picture, the really, really good news is you can't put this back in the box. And Packy, to your point about VR is people can say whatever they want to. We are not going to put this back in the box. So the question is, how do we kind of tame the whirlwind here and do really smart things to make sure that when we go out to the to the real world, we're we're providing the best quality pilots and navigators and CISOs that we can to, to win the future fight. Yeah, one of the things you said sort of was uh, talking about vision. You mentioned being able to clearly cast the vision um, time and time again. You know, so the people people perish for lack of vision, and that's one of the things yeah. that I've slowly seen morph into is the more that we continue casting the same vision and the message is consistent, people are start they, they're getting it because they're hearing the same message more and more. And it's consistently yep. about not only just commands, but it's the same thing through the squadron. Um, but you know, a lot, a lot of times I think that vision has been lost in the past where it's said mm-hmm. one time that we don't hear anything else about it, but the consistency yep. of continuing to get that message out and continuing to share, Hey, this is where we're going. You know, cause how many times you never get in the car and, and start your engine and not know where you're going. Like I've never yeah. done that before. Normally you got to know where you're going and continuing cast that message. That, that's huge. And frankly, that's where I've seen a lot of change is where yeah. the message remains consistent. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if, if my schedule allowed it, I would spend 90% of my time walking around in squadrons and in hallways talking to people about this because you are 100% right. And um, most people, it, it's just, the world that's happening out there, people are not aware of. I had no idea. Like I'd never heard of a live, you know, pilot edge. Yeah. I didn't know that, you know, and I consider like all of us, like, you know, we consider ourselves fairly enlightened, but I had no idea that there's this video game that people play like X-Plane where people think it's fun to flight plan and file, like file a flight plan and get a, a clearance. I mean, people do this for hours and they think that's fun. Yeah. There's also a game out there. I was down at Tyndall for our air battle management school. There's commercial software out there for you to practice being an air battle manager for crying out loud. So we've got this scenario where people are teaching themselves to fly. And then when they get to day one of air force pilot training, whether you have 10,000 hours as a private pilot or whether you've never seen an airplane, we treat you the same. We put a T6 test pilot through pilot training, Packy, a T6 test pilot through pilot training. We made him fly every sortie in the T6. Is that something that might change? Yes, absolutely. Um, speaking of change, and we talked about new technology for you know for decades. Our new technology has been new airplanes. We're getting the T seven allegedly at some point, and so kind of kind of two two different questions. Um, the current model of the T six to the T one or the T thirty eight. Have we thought about just doing a straight to the T one? Maybe for those prior experienced airline pilots who are going to the guard. Um, and then the follow-up question is, as we get the T7, whenever that is, are we keeping the 38 around so that we can keep the production rate up as we transition to the new airplane, or is it going to be all or nothing as we transition? Yeah, so two great questions. So one of the things that General Webb, the ATC commander, has really been working on, and in fact, the command's been working on for a couple of years, is this idea of force development. And so, whereas in the old days, you know, when I came in as a lieutenant, we were called Air Training Command. And then later on, we became Air Education and Training Command. 
but this we're more and more recognizing that every individual is, is different and learns differently and brings a different set of skills to the fight. Many of your listeners out there and the people that are on the, the cast and the math pages, they're doing, they have hobbies and skills that the air force knows nothing about and that we don't tap into at all. I mean, compl- we're all complex human beings. So the idea is that our future training system should be able to capture that and make use of it. There's a few anecdotes out there. You know, there's this, there is a study that says that 80% of the people will learn faster if you let them. And we had a high profile case where we kind of unleashed the shackles in the cyber training course. And I think one of the kids went through in 17 days and it's normally like a four month course or something. So we're trying to figure out how do we adapt our pilot training system to take it, take account into account the different skills that people bring to the fight. We're specifically looking at this question of whether we can bring in folks with the right civilian credentials and offer an accelerated path to wings for the, for the right people. Um, now, we're also looking at this idea of is, is there an alternate path to wings? Those things are definitely under development right now, and we've got some work to do. The trick of all of that, and Chief Goldfein's guidance was crystal clear, and I agree with it at, you know, 100%, and I think you will too, which is, you're cleared hot to look at that stuff, but the standard is the standard. So how do we do that is, is the devil's in the details. Last year, or about a year and a half ago, we, we did an experiment where we took, I think, two folks that were headed to the Air National Guard who had a lot of civilian experience, and we put them strictly through the T-1. I think they had started in T-6 training, but we moved them straight to the T-1 with, before they got going on the T-6. They graduated, and they're doing great. So we're definitely looking into that and trying to figure out how we might be able to make that happen while maintaining the same standards. One of the tricks is most of us that have been to pilot training and been around the business have lots of examples of people that had a lot of civilian time and they did really great in pilot training. But we all usually have an example of somebody who had a lot of civilian time that didn't do well in Air Force pilot training. So it's obviously imperative that we are able to sort the difference out uh, on that front. So yes, Look for more changes on that front in the coming year. We have some more work to do to make the details happen. And speaking of experienced people, uh, when I solicited for questions on the pilot network, a few people responded saying, hey, I wanted to go to UPT, but I'm too old. Um, One guy is at UPT right now. He's 39 years old. But then another guy responded, hey, I'm 34. They wouldn't let me in. Um, is is there any magic button that these folks or, or any office they should reach out to if maybe they've talked to one or two Guard or Reserve units and they say we're not going to push the age waiver? Is there a recourse for them? What I would say is that as you apply, if you get told no, then you should ask for a waiver. And there is a, there is a designated, you know, there's a definitive, excuse me, a defined waiver process for these things. Fundamentally, our problem isn't that we can't get enough applicants. You know, this question comes up a lot. The problem we have right now is not that I don't have enough people that want to fly of a certain age. The problem I have is that my production engine can't produce as many as I would like it to produce in a given year. So I don't see that there's going to be a wholesale policy change on the age limit because, frankly, it's not a requirement right now. But as you say, there there have been people who have successfully gotten waivers, and I would encourage them to just ask the question, and uh, then it's up to the you know, let the process run its course is how I would do that. Yeah, and I, I think that part of it is lost uh, in the folks who make that argument because we hear pilot crisis, but um, but there is the, the logjam of UPT. You can only produce yeah. so many. 
Um, That's exactly right. Going back to the air crew crisis, everybody always wants to talk about retention. One question I've got mm-hmm. for you. A lot of folks in my shoes, I'm a, I'm a major with not much time left on my active duty service commitment. And a lot of folks will get upset that the Air Force is not offering as much, uh, as much of a bonus as certain studies have said they should offer in order to retain more pilots. And then additionally mm-hmm. to that, the um, incentive pay, the fly pay, while it's pretty close to the limit, there's actually a very slight uh, difference between what the limit is that Congress has mandated and then what the Air Force actually pays, obviously, depending on how many mm-hmm. years you've had, you've had in. And so some folks take offense to that, and I, I just ask, what's the, what's the headquarters' answer to that? Yeah, I, what I would say is that uh, that in this particular case, um, 19th Air Force headquarters doesn't really have a big opinion on that. And uh, I'll leave that to the Air Crew Crisis Task Force. You know, we have a lot of people that work bonus policy and those kind of things. Um, so I, I don't want to be one of those guys that always defers, but, uh, I would, I think that's a better question for different people who know more about the subject. What I would say more broadly is when you talk about the subject of whether to continue to serve as an air force officer or whether to go to me, you know, my, and this is purely anecdotal, but you know, over my 29 year career or so, generally speaking, I have yet to meet anybody that took the bonus who wasn't already going to stay. You know, I mean, there's a few examples, but I have yet to meet anybody that said, well, you know, I was I was kind of on the fence, but, you know, the bonus was five thousand dollars higher this year. So I decided to stick stick with the team. They, they may be out there, but I just have I personally haven't met very many people like that. I think that we have to be really careful as a force when we go down the bonus discussion, because fundamentally, when I look at these young people that are in training, I don't see a bunch of pilots or CISOs or ABMs. I see a bunch of Air Force officers. And I think we have in, in uh, one of the consequences of talking so much about pilot retention is that we've taken a little bit of the spotlight off the fact that we put bars on your shoulders before we put wings on your chest for a reason. And you know very well as a, as a guy that's out there flying the line, we're asking people to put their lives on, their line, on the line for the country. No amount of money uh, can make that worthwhile. There's no amount of money you can, you can offer somebody in exchange for the willingness to put their life on the, on the line. So I say that not to diminish the importance of having a good bonus program or not to, uh, to say that I'm anti-bonus. Nothing can be further from the truth. But I think the advice I would give to people is to say, listen, if you're counting the dollars, when you're getting close to that decision, if you're really counting the dollars, then you probably should think about getting out because, you know, what we're going to ask you to do, those few bucks aren't going to make a difference if the worst thing happens, you know, and, and for, you know, whether you're flying a low-level uh, insertion for some paratroopers in Afghanistan or, or some other place that, you know, that's, we're asking an awful lot of you. And so I would instead ask people to focus on the quality of their service. And I oftentimes ask um, a couple of basic questions. And first one is I say, why did you come in? What did you come here to do? What are the things that motivated you to serve? And once you know what those things are, and by the way, I've gone down this road a lot of times, Packy, I've been around for a while. I've had to decide whether to stay or go many times. I bet. And I write them, you know, I write them down, like in print. Why did I come here? And then the next question I ask is obvious, which is, am I still getting what I came here for? And if you're still getting what you came here for, you should stay, because we have a lot of great work to offer. We're surrounded by what I think are the best people and the best families in the, in the world. And if you're not getting what you came here for anymore, I think you should think about leaving. Not because I don't like you or value you, 
but because I want you to be happy. For our, our people that are listening to this have already done more than 99% of the people in this country are going to do. And they have my undying gratitude. And if you decide to get out, I got two things to say. The first one is thank you. Thanks to you and your families. Thanks for everything you've done. And the second thing is, what do you need from me? You need a letter of recommendation? You want me to make a phone call? How can I help you? And that's honestly how I feel. It's easy when you get on the internet and you start reading the comments to just start thinking that everyone is jaded. Uh, The majority of my peers who have chosen to get out in the last year or two, and I think Trigger would say the same thing, um, look back fondly on their service. And then I think many of them would have answered your first question by saying, I came in to fly airplanes. And then over time, you develop as an officer, but then you get to the ending point and you, you're looking at a few years of staff and you think, man, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get to fly airplanes for a little while. And I think that makes the decision yeah. kind of easy for some. And then for others, obviously, uh, they choose to stay in and that's great. Um, yeah, okay. I, I totally agree with that, by the way. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's nothing wrong with that. And um, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, we're grateful to the folks that come and serve, honestly. We talked about folks coming into UPT, and you've got bright-eyed second lieutenants, first lieutenants, or maybe even captains and majors, but all of them are pretty excited to learn how to fly the T-6 and then their follow-on and then go to their MWS after that. Um, And I think right now is a pretty exciting time because we've got uh, a different group of people going to RPAs. Uh, We've kind of changed how assignments are handed out. But I can tell you that I recall from my time in UPT that uh, guys would show up excited to fly the F-16, and then a year later, they'd be off to fly the Predator. And then 10 years later, after multiple Predator assignments and maybe a C-17 thrown in the middle, they have about 800 hours. They don't really look great for the airlines. Um, They don't really have a great record. And it's, I would say it's hard for folks like me who have seen that in the past to tell the lieutenants and the captains showing up to our squadrons for the first assignment that, uh, hey, everything's going to be great. Because a lot of folks have seen periods of greatness, but then followed up by changes in philosophy or uh, course vectors that kind of made the Air Force not as good of a place to serve for a couple of years. And so that's not really a question, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's um, it's an interest. We've lived through some interesting times, and I think, you know, we will continue to live through some interesting times. I remember, you know, very well, I was a squadron commander when the TAMI 21 initiative came along. It was, you know, total air crew management initiative for the 21st century was the name of it. And what it really meant was that we all had to send some folks to RPAs because the, the demand for RPAs went from, I think, at the time when our chief and secretary were, were asked to leave, I think we had around a dozen combat air patrols. And then I think a year later, we had something like 50 or 60. So the needs of the Air Force will always come first. They have to come first. It's our mission. We're not here to, you know, the American people give us a lot of honor and respect, and they have high expectations for us. And that expectation is that we're going to meet the mission, and that's going to be the primary thing. So sometimes, unfortunately, the you know, when there are big swings in requirements or big changes, uh, occasionally the way that those things get rolled out, it, it will affect some people in a way that they weren't anticipating or expecting. And there can be no question that if your timing is really poor and you get caught up in the right thing, then maybe your career isn't going to go down the path that you thought it would. So I don't have a solution for that per se, except to say, you know, when you say um, not a great place to serve, what I would say is that what I'm 
I think, and most of my senior leader friends that I know, and certainly my bosses, you know, we're absolutely committed to trying to increase not, not just quality of life, but quality of service. And I think you've seen if, if folks can be objective and it's very difficult to do, especially if you are affected by one of these big swings in policy, but if you just take back, take a look at what's been going on over the last few years, whether it be the big push for innovation or whether it's the chief's push uh, to, to empower squadron commanders and reinvest in the squadron, whether it's the addition of contractors to help take some of the additional duties off, whether it's ideas like these new force development categories, whether it's taking a fresh look at the OPR, the EPR. I mean, even the folks who maybe aren't really high on the Air Force at the moment, if you took a step back, I think there'd be a lot of evidence to suggest that the senior leadership is hearing you and that we're investing a lot to try and, and maintain the trust of the people that we lead. So my advice in a case like this is um, you always have to do what's best for you and your family. Certainly we're expecting that while, while our folks are with us, that they're going to do their very best as an Air Force officer. But certainly when it comes to the decisions you have to make, we also ex expect and, and would hope that you're going to do also what's best for your family. The advice I give the young people is to remember that the best insurance in turbulent times is to continue to do the very best job you can do. And um, you have no control. You know, when I went to navigator training, they told me, you know, if you if you're you have no chance of going to F-15Es because of X, Y and Z that it happened. You do the best you can. And somehow, miraculously, I got an F-15E. I got lucky. Other times I got less lucky with the assignment I wanted. But the, the common denominator, the very best insurance that folks have is to do the very best job they can at the place they're at. Because the one, th one business rule that remains standard in the Air Force is, is if you're the best pilot in the squadron or the best officer in the squadron, your chances of getting the assignment you want are better. So we want to take care of every single person that we can. My advice to young people is, is keep working hard, do the very best you can to set yourself up to have options to take good care of your family in the future. So I don't know if that gets after what you were asking, Packy. I know it's not a perfect answer, but we really do want, you know, we're working really, really hard to ensure that people can trust us as senior leadership and know that we are doing the best we can to, to keep their best interests at heart. And my response to that is uh, on the innovation side, I've certainly seen that every senior leader I interact with all the way from my wing leadership and, and higher than that, um, is always all about making uh, not necessarily everything better for the airmen, but giving us what we need to do our job. Um, mm -hmm. One concern that I have, and I'll preface this by saying, uh, I think people often forget, I know I do, that every two or three or four-star general was once a crew dog, uh, a squadron commander. <laughs> so I know that you've been in my shoes before, even if it's been a little bit of time. Um, you remember the DV visits when you were working in the squadron. And you would do the walkthrough mm -hmm. before the DV shows up, and then you might do another walkthrough, and then the DV shows up. And, you know, for lack of a better phrase, I'm not sure people are always giving you in that forum the honest truth about what's going on. And I'm certain that you mm -hmm. appreciate it when you get it, uh, but I'm also certain that you're aware that maybe you're not getting the full truth or the full story. What are some strategy, yeah. strategies you have to prevent that? Maybe you don't want to give all of them away. No, I'm – I. I'm with you, man. I'll tell you the, um, first of all, the, uh, the generation of general officers, you know, the people that are my peers, we lived through, we lived through the squadron downsizing, you know, just to cage you in terms of timing. I was a squadron commander when they started taking away all my support. 
when I lost my orderly room, when I lost my comm support, when I lost authorities. And so one of the reasons you see General Goldstein and our, you know, my cohort and higher pushing so hard is we were the ones that had to figure out how that worked and we didn't like it. So these changes aren't arbitrary. We're not chasing retention numbers. We're trying to put things right in a lot of ways and make it what it should be. And that kind of calls into falls into the category of DV visits. You know, one of the ROE that I have is um, try to minimize the amount of protocol. And I tell my wing commanders, hey, if you're re- if you're doing a big walkthrough or a drive through or a rehearsal for my visit, you're doing it wrong. Your airmen have better things to do. I can open my own doors, you know. So some of that is trying to reduce the protocol requirements. You know, there needs to be a certain amount of protocol. This is the military. You know, if somebody throws a cup of cold water in my face when I first get on the base and my, my feelings might get hurt a little bit or something, <laughs> but you know, we're trying to make it not a dog and pony show. And most of my peers, we want to meet the airmen. We don't mind seeing empty buildings and stuff, you know, new buildings. Cause some of that's important, but mostly we want to hear from the airmen. My strategy is usually I sit down at a um, squadron commander lunch or an airman breakfast or in an all call. And I usually lead off with, Hey, we can do this one of two ways. We can do the part where I talk and you keep your, you keep to yourself and you don't ask the question that you really want to ask. Uh, or you can ask me the real question and you can be honest with me and, and I'll be honest with you. And fundamentally it's up to you. So that's the strategy I use. I try to use plain language wherever I can. I try to be as, as transparent as I can. Periodically people ask me questions, you know, there's, you know, Packy as well as I do, there's certain questions you could ask me right now that I just can't answer in this forum. But for the most part, I try really, really hard to be as transparent as I can with people. And, and so far, I've gotten a reasonably good response to that. Every senior leader is a little bit different. My, my advice to you would be be polite, be respectful, but say what's on your mind when your senior leaders come to town. If you don't, you have only yourself to blame if they leave and they don't know what's on your mind. Yes, sir. I, I love that. Uh, I'll follow that up with what's the toughest, you've, toughest question you've gotten in one of those forums? You know, uh, actually, the toughest question is, um, I don't, I would say the toughest question, usually the toughest ones are when they ask you something that's like budget related and you can't talk about it because the budget hasn't been released. Yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to stay out of trouble and then some, and there are rules about all that stuff, especially if there's contractors in the room. So those things are technically the toughest. I haven't had a um, question yet that made me really uncomfortable because generally I just try to be as honest as I can. You know, if you, um, so I, I, I know that's a little bit of a cop out, but nothing, honestly, the technical ones are the hardest because I don't want to, I don't want to break the law with respect to divulging something to a contractor. But the questions the airmen ask me, the ones that make me feel the worst is when they ask a question and it's something that I know I just can't do anything about at, in the short term. And it usually has something to do with, um, you know, here's a good example of we've had some cases. I've had a couple of cases in my command where some folks got passed over for promotion. And I looked at the records and I just didn't understand why. You know, in my mind, I looked at the record and I thought, man, I, that person should have been promoted. And when they ask you, what should I have done differently? How could I have done it differently? I don't, those are the hardest ones because I don't know what to say. I look at the record sometimes and I go, hey, you should have made it, but I can't change the board results, you know. So that's that is what I find the personally the most painful is when I know that it didn't turn out quite how we all would have hoped and I can't do anything about it. Hey, sir, I, I got I got one for you. This is trigger again. In in a parting shot, you said a hard hard questions. 
I don't know if it's hard for you, but you, we've all we have all encountered um, situations and at times leadership that that uh, is just hard. I mean, it's just hard to it's either hard to deal with whether it's personality conflicts, whether it's um, things that just aren't aligning. How how do we lead, how do you lead up? How do you, do you know what I mean by that? How do you lead up when, yeah. when you know? There's a, you know, whether it's a squadron, whether, whether it's, uh, whether you're deployed where you say, man, like, I think they, I'm not sure if they're, if it's not that they're missing it, but how do you, how do you at the operator level, whether you're at a squadron, whether you're in a flight, how do you effectively lead up to impact the change that you know needs to happen and you know, that needs to take place if, if frankly, there's just toxic leadership at times, because I think we have all yeah. encountered moments of that. And it's one of the things that doesn't get talked about. How do you how do you do that? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I mean, first of all, one of the things that we, you know, um, this is a rich, rich conversation. We have a, you know, what I've seen is that a lot of folks will use the toxic word a lot. And the truth of the matter is, you know, very few leaders will come along that are like what I call, you know, Pied Piper leadership or Cinnabon leadership, you know, where they, they just start playing a tune and the whole world just follows them and it's magical. We've all had a leader like that, but you don't run in. Most of us are not like that. And the Cinnabon theory of leadership, which is, man, I can smell that thing wherever I'm at in the mall and I just want more of it. It'd be great if we were all like that, but we're not. And I'll tell you, there's, there's a difference though, between being a toxic leader and being either a, a demanding boss or a, or a boss that's sometimes hard to work with. So think we throw the toxic word around a lot. We got to be really careful about that. And then my selfish reason for saying that is that not every subordinate that I've ever had thinks I'm a great leader. And sometimes you just, for whatever reason, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't pan out. So the, to get to the heart of your question, what do you do in that situation? And you're right, we've all been there. The very first thing we should do is try to understand the leader's intent. General Gorence used to have a great saying, you know, he, he got all of us weight combatters together and he said, listen, uh, it's my turn. I'm in charge. We're going to do it my way. Someday you're going to be in charge and you can do it your way. But for now, I'm in charge. <laughs> we love I mean, He's a great guy. And what he said was, you know, we're going to we're going to talk it out. I want your input. I want your advice. I'm counting on you. But at the end of the day, when I make a decision, we're going to move out. That's that's very much a uh, military type of thing. And so the first thing you should ask yourself if you're in a difficult position is, hey, am I being a good follower? We've, we've made all these, we've made talking about leadership, a cottage industry. And if you are, if you're following the leaders on Facebook, everybody's posted a new leadership book every day. And if you ever asked yourself, like who could possibly read all of those books that they're posting? I mean, it's, it's like a, a big fad right now. Yeah. So ask yourself, we should be talking more about followership, followership as well. Am I being a good follower? Do I understand the commander's intent? Have I given a, a good faith effort? to move out on what they're trying to get done. And if you say, ask yourself and you're honest with yourself, you say, oh, either I don't understand the commander's intent or I don't understand why they want that. Well, then go figure it out. And if you can answer yourself, yes, I'm being a good, a good follower. Yes, I'm, I'm doing the very best I can to make this leader successful. But I also have a big difference of opinion. And I think this particular issue needs to be raised. Then the next thing you need to try and do is to frame the issue in terms that the, that the leader can relate to and explain how what you're offering is compatible with their vision, you know? And if you can do that, usually what happens, 
not usually, but very often where you see conflict is where the leader is trying to move the organization in one particular direction and the subordinate is just not hearing it. And so the subordinate will, it'll become a, a clash because the subordinate, frankly, isn't accounting for what the, the leader's uh, responsibilities or vision is. And if you can do that to the greatest extent that you can frame your initiatives in the context of how you're going to help them achieve the organization's goals or the leader's goals, you'll be more successful. And then if you get to the part where you just have a completely diametric view of how things should be going, then, you know, then your response depends a lot on the nature of the subject at hand. So on one end of the spectrum, there is, hey, the leader wants me to do something that's immoral, unethical, or illegal. Well, that's a showstopper. And every officer has the responsibility, responsibility to step up and say, no, I'm not going to do something that's illegal, immoral, or unethical. And then at the far other end of the spectrum is just, yeah, I mean, it's just not the way I would do it. Well, if it's if you don't like it, but but it's just not the way you would do it, well, then you should move out and get it done. And then when you get to be the leader, you can do it differently. And then, of course, there's an awful lot of scenarios in between. And in almost every case, it gets down to a poor communications is usually what leads to toxic situation. In very, very many cases, it's the leader's fault. And then sometimes there are cases where the, the, the communication just doesn't work. In any case, it is the responsibility of the leader um, to try and prevent that. But as subordinates, we have to always be doing a good job as much as we can to make sure that we're adapting to our boss as well. So that was a huge question. Books have been written about that. I wish I could tell you I was a perfect leader. I wish I could tell you that everybody you meet will say, oh, working for Wills was great. You'll find plenty of people who didn't enjoy working for me. And so it's just one of those things that you you try to get better every single day and you try to make it clear and you try to make it better. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's not, when you talk about leadership, that that isn't often very a very popular subject is intrinsically looking at yourself and taking a real assessment of where you at and yeah. where actually, where is your, where is your mindset and how willing are yeah. you to acknowledge that maybe you have things to change about yourself? <laughs> that's, yeah. where, where, where are the books on that? So, you know, we have to recognize that the world is changing in, in our military. I think we've done a reasonably good job of, of accommodating greater viewpoints, but we also have to remember that we, that we are a high, there is a hierarchy involved and you're right. Followership is just as important as leadership. So excellent, uh, excellent point. Sir, I really appreciate all your time today. When we publish this, we'll solicit for comments and for all the listeners, if you want to comment or ask a follow-up question, just go to doverspark.org slash podcast sir, whatever I get, I'll send your way if you have time to answer it. Well, listen, I, re- I appreciate your time and I appreciate what you're doing and trigger the same. You guys are doing, you know, amazing work to keep our Air Force moving forward. So um, I'm always available. Sometimes the scheduling is a little tricky, but um, I look forward to helping you however I can. And I just say a, a mighty shout out to all your listeners as well. Thanks for what they're doing every single day. It's a great Air Force and I'm proud to be part of it.